Hello, and welcome to Getting to You, the podcast for healthcare professionals who help those at risk or living with HIV. Brought to you by the Connecticut AIDS Education and Training Center. My name is Peter Gay-Namard, Project Manager at the Department of Health and Human Services at the City of Hartford. And co-hosting with me is Dante Gennaro, Program Director of the CT. AETC at Yale University. Hey, Dante. Hello, hello, happy to be here. Also co-hosting with me is Dr. Sharon McKay, Program Coordinator of the CT AETC at Yale University. Hey, Sharon. Hi, everyone. To get CME for listening to this podcast, find the link to the CME website in the description of this episode. I'm really looking forward to talking with our guest speaker about today's topic of discussion, people of childbearing age and HIV. But first, like we do with every podcast, let's kick off with today's hot topic. Dr. McKay, take it away. Thanks, Dante. In January of this year, the Department of Health and Human Services released new chest feeding guidelines for childbearing folks with HIV. The recommendations came from the Panel on Treatment of HIV During Pregnancy and Prevention of Perinatal Transmission, a group of about 35 clinicians with expertise in working with HIV in pregnancy. Breast milk is a potential source of HIV infection. In the past, people with HIV were not only discouraged from body feeding their newborns due to the risk of transmission, In some cases, people were threatened with reporting to state family services organizations, and some were actually reported. But what about patients who maintain undetectable viral loads with antiretroviral therapy? Doesn't U equals U hold up in the realm of chest feeding? Unfortunately, not quite. The current research shows that there is a very small but non-zero possibility of transmitting HIV in milk, even when viral loads are undetectable. The new guidelines counsel clinicians to support people with undetectable viral loads in exploring either option, body feeding or using formula or banked breast milk in a shared decision-making model. Why the change? Being HIV positive comes with a lot of stigma. And for some people, so does a decision not to use their own milk to feed babies. In an effort to support people in this difficult decision, The new guidelines include educating parents in a non-judgmental, empowering way and providing timelines for monitoring babies' HIV status during and after chest feeding. Peter Gay, what are your initial thoughts on this? So my thoughts are uh, we need to shout this from the rooftops. We need to get this information out there. Um, I think this is awesome. Uh, Shows, again, like I always say, the advancements we've made, right, in this fight. Um, I know as a mom myself and having breastfed my son, uh, how important breast milk is for a newborn baby and their growth and, and development. So for those whom also have had the um, our moms or our, our childbearing age who have given birth or two children, this is this is important regardless of their status. So this is this is great. We need to make sure this information gets disseminated. What about you, Dante? Yeah, I echo PDK's sentiments. I also what I really like about this is the idea that researchers are continuing to study people who are undetectable, and it's exciting because. Uh, a lot of the original guidelines and a lot of the original information that came out about the effects of HIV on the human body were done back in the 80s and 90s before the term undetectable came about and before we had the advancements in the treatments that we currently have. So I love that they're continuing to do uh, more research and studying people who are undetectable. uh, And I hope that they continue to find uh, more positive news like this to, to share with everyone. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm excited about this too. I'm sure this is going to be really a, a big, a big improvement for so many people. If you want to learn more about the new chest feeding guidelines for yourself, we'll include a link in the description of today's podcast. 
All right, now it's time for our first quick break. Don't go anywhere because when we come back, we will have Danielle Warren Diaz here from Connecticut Children's Yukon Health Youth and Family Community Health Program to discuss the impact of HIV on people of childbearing age. We'll be right back in just a few seconds. Hey, I'm Atiba. I was just tested for HIV for the first time. After going over my risk factors and getting back my test results, my doctor told me about PrEP as another method to prevent HIV, which I never knew of. Thanks to that doctor's visit, I'm now on PrEP. Not only am I protecting myself, but I'm also helping to protect my community. Now I'm paying it forward by telling everyone to screen and test. For more information, visit test-ct.org. All right, welcome back. We've invited subject matter expert, Danielle Warren Diaz, to discuss with us what is happening in today's world with women and HIV. Welcome, Danielle. Wanna tell the people a little bit about yourself? Hello everyone, and thank you all for having me here today. My name is Danielle Warren Diaz. Um, I've been working with the Pediatric Youth and Family Program for about 30 years now. Uh, we specialize in HIV treatment and prevention services. Now we're adding STIs and hepatitis C along with that. Um, uh, for women, infants, children, and youth. Um, and from here on out, I hope you all don't mind if I refer to the population we have our expertise in as the wiki population. Um, so, you know, I've been working in the field for a long time. I started off as a medical case manager. Um, I um, continued to get a few degrees and eventually became the director of the program. And what um, is inspirational, I think, to the people around me is that I am a person of lived experiences. So um, I bring my passion, my personal life. I've lost family members to HIV, my cousin Adrian, um, my godbrother Bernie, um, and helped families bury many children and youth. Um, and grandparents and parents over these 30 years, especially at the beginning of the epidemic. So again, you know, I'm, I'm really, really grateful to be here today, first of all, and to be able to give my input on the subject matter. That is amazing. And so for those of you who don't know, um, I say all the time that Danielle is my public health mentor. 30 years is amazing. And for everything that you brought, because People don't know you yet, but they will. Um, everything that you brought to this community is just has just been astonishing. All the words, all the feelings um, to witness how you work within this community is just brilliant. So again, welcome and thank you so much for being here with us today. So um, before we get started, I thought we'd get your input on the new chest feeding guidelines we talked about during our hot topic. Uh, what do you think of this development? Um, of course, uh, I, you know, um, uh, resoundingly agree with uh, what you all have said. Um, what I want to talk about is that uh, since the early 90s, we had what we call the PATCG, which was the actual research that um, uh, warranted us being able to know that if a mother is on AZT, which was the first um, drug that ever came out um, during um, pregnancy, um, as well as um, the child being put on it for the first six weeks of life, that we bought the transmission rates about down in the 90s from mother um, um, uh, exposing HIV and a child be contracting HIV to less than 1%. And so that has been for years. So from there, you know, originally it was women of childbearing age that really started this U equals U information and research. So if a mother can carry a child for nine months and be on medications um, and not transmit the um the virus to the, the HIV virus to the child what how how much is it is she able to pass it on sexually so that grew out of you know that that research um and since then that is the standard of care for women who are HIV positive now because of stigma um 
you know, folks still feel that women who live with HIV should not have children. But if she is healthy um, and she is undetectable and she is on medication and she provides um, uh, the um, medication to the infant for the first six weeks of life is what we're calling PEP now. After exposure, if you take medicines within 72 hours, you're more than likely not to contract the virus if you've had a, a, an exposure. So, um, you know, that started with women of childbearing age. So this U equals you. Okay, we're going to give a shout out to our little mamas that were part of this research because it was new and they were already scared. And I remember those days, you know. Um, so I just wanted to point that out um, and that it's recommended that um, women not um, breastfeed, but the percentage is the same percentage of women passing um, HIV onto their um, newborn if they are undetectable and on, are on medications. Um, but I'm glad that it's left up to the individual, the um, childbearing um, age moms um, to be able to make that decision. Awesome, awesome. I really appreciate you contextualizing it like that. I never yeah. really thought about it. both PrEP and PEP were kind of grew out of the... <laughs> it was born out of that That's research right. done back 20 something years ago. And, yeah. you know, and I'm glad that I was able to be um, involved in the HIV arena, you know, since then when it comes to women um, and, and, and having children um, and to children and youth as, as well. I, I was able to be a part of seeing that, that growth, that journey from um, women, you know, giving birth to children and now that information par being parlayed into um, services and um, prevention like PrEP and PEP. That's awesome. Amazing. Um, so still on the topic um, of uh, chest feeding guidelines, what is your professional guidance about use of inclusive language? You heard us using chest feeding and such as we're talking about, you know, childbearing patients. What can you give us some insight from your professional uh, standpoint of inclusive language in like clinic settings or working with with patients? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's okay as long as you don't veer too far off to confusing the people that you're trying to include. And I'm finding that more and more now with, you know, with, with new language and, and trying to use inclusive language that uh, lots of times, unfortunately, it really differs from what people are used to hearing. So if you have um, someone who is not in this arena, who is um, not in the public health field, um, who really doesn't do the, that this type of work, you know, a, a mom from my neighborhood is going to call it breastfeeding. And if you say chest feeding, it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, so sometimes, you know, changing it and I, and I, I get it, you know, we're trying to be inclusive. We're trying to do it for a right reason, but what happens is that it leaves a lot of people behind. And in my community where we have the lowest, um, Race, unfortunately, of educational um, progress and access, um, you you could really ostracize certain people to say, okay, what are you talking about? And it's it's okay because at that point, I guess you would teach them. But for certain people, those kind of things feels uncomfortable um, because they know themselves to have breasts, and that's what you feed with your breasts, right? So, um, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I agree. Um, uh, teachable moments are always something that uh, are important. And I'm even with my family and we've talked about this also being that, you know, you're married to a Caribbean person. So you know what the Caribbean culture is. You have to you have to tread lightly at times and then, you know, use the moments that you can to kind of bring people into understanding. So absolutely. So you touched on this earlier. Right, um, by giving us a little hint of your background, but I thought it'd be a great idea to learn a little bit more about you professionally. So I'd like to ask what early professional experiences helped fuel your passion for your work in the HIV field? Hopefully I don't get too emotional. When I first started, my very first client, she was a three-year-old little girl, little black girl. 
And this was, you know, the early 90s. And people were very fearful of people with HIV. We were still learning a lot. And she, um, and back then the kids would were, you know, they were living with full-blown AIDS. And um, she was in the hospital, you know, she was going in and out the hospital. And when she would go in, um, people would always make sure they were suited up with gloves and um, you know, the, the mask and everything. And um, she really got touched by the medical professionals, the nurses and things like that, but with their skin, with their bare hands. And I'll never forget, I, I made sure that I went to see her on my way home because she was at a hospital that was right on my way home um, to go and just to hold her. Like she was having trouble keeping milk down and stuff like that. And I would go in with nothing on because I'm a person um, um, with lived experience and I felt like we, what are we going to do to each other and I just really wanted to put some flesh on her so I would stop and um, I remember this one time I got her to drink her milk right and she would every all the other nurses and everyone was having a fit you know of trying to get this baby to take in the milk and um, and I was just so happy she drank it all and everything. But before I left, she threw it all back up over me. It was in my hair, on my clothes and stuff it, because it was it it was the hard scene, especially with kids. Um, and she ended up dying. And um, her mother was 17 years old, um, who did not have custody. She was with a foster family, beautiful foster family, who was really kept an open door to the 17 year old mom. But um, when I went to the funeral, it was my first funeral um, in my work and um, of a kid, you know, a little baby. I lost my god brother and everything. And I saw adults die that had died from AIDS and caskets, but it was like, it should have been a dial box because that's how small it was. And I'll never forget it was white. I will never forget. I said like, this is, should be a doll in a box, not a baby who died from AIDS, you know? And um, it just moved me so much um, to that. I just, I, it just, it fueled this passion. I mean, I had it because it's my community. It's who, it's me, you know? Um, but to see this little girl um, in this casket just really was a, a turning point for me to give me a passion that it was beyond because it's my community. It's just because it's right. And this is a baby who should not have died from AIDS. So um, that was like one experience that I will never forget. And um, sometimes when we start meetings or we're at activities around um, um, the HIV um, topic, we'll start off with, you know, a moment of silence and a time mm -hmm. to be able to call a person's name. And it's not one time that I don't call her name. Sorry about that, y'all. No, that was perfect. I'm actually, my throat is welling up. Uh, I'm trying to stifle. Um, but no, that that was a that was a beautiful that that was so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Oh, give me a second. It must be really gratifying to have spent your life since then working in this field and being part of the amazing progress that's been made with children. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I prayed for it all the time. At the beginning, I prayed. I said, God, you know, I want there to be a time where babies weren't born HIV positive, that kids didn't have to die. And I'm telling you, we, we're close. You know what I mean? I was able to go through, you know, that um, seeing what happened with the studies and um, bringing down the um, transmission rate from, um, you know, infants not being born HIV positive. Mm -hmm. Um, so in, in, in our country, uh, especially in the Northeast, um, we've really come further than other places because um, I didn't expect to have children on our caseloads anymore at the Children's Hospital, but we still do. And when uh, Obama lifted the HIV ban, we got an influx of kids being able to be adopted into the country. So most of the kids um, that we follow at the Children's Hospital that are um, not youth, not adolescents, because the adolescents we have have contracted HIV through their own situations. But, um, 
you know, with, with that, it's just mostly kids who are adopted from other countries or they're moving up from um, the South somewhere um, where we actually have children still living uh, with HIV. But it's, it's just come such a long, long way. Um, unfortunately, we bury young um, uh, women I, for some reason of childbearing age to, um, to, to AIDS, but um, rarely are we bearing children. Um, I also agree that I feel like we're that we're close um, for sure. It's such not for nothing. This is such a very like personal topic for me too. And like hearing it is it's getting emotional and overwhelming. I am emotional. I know. Yeah. So I'm trying to like hold it in a little bit. Um, but when I went to Africa and Zimbabwe years ago with Gary Blick's practice we would go to an orphanage where they had children whose parents had died from AIDS and these kids were all HIV positive. And there was this one little girl who I absolutely fell in love with. And I would go in and grab her and I use her picture all the time as my Zoom background. Whenever my camera is turned off, they called her Missy. They didn't know her name. And if I could have, I would have brought her back here and gotten her the treatment that, you know, she could have been on to live a long and healthy life. And it's so sad because I think hearing these stories is just so touching. But, you know, in all likelihood, she's passed away by now from not being able to get, you know, the treatment that we're so fortunate and lucky to have here. And I think that people just don't understand how grateful we should all be that we live in the United States and that we have access to these medications. They're not cheap. And yes, we could be doing better about making them accessible to people, but I think we take for granted that we have the advancements that we do. So that's why I'm sorry. I'm like, my no, energy no, is- you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Uh, we, when we get the kids in from other countries, we look at their regimen like, what the? Yeah. <laughs> you on it's just like and, it, and it's in jamaica too when they come over yeah. from jamaica it's like what like, yeah. the, like on eight different meds like they get what they can right like all the donated stuff and they just throw it all on them and it's, it's old pills it's like the old regimens and stuff from the old regimens and this is like we have to take them down even um childbearing age women because we have um you know those cases that are coming from jamaica and um what they're on is just like crazy um and then then if they're if they're just here for the six months because you know um women um, of the Caribbean, they'll come, they can come and go and they want to keep straight their, their immigration stuff. So they come mm -hmm. for six months, but they need to be seen. Then it's like, do you change their regimen? Cause they're going to go back and get put on their garbage when yeah. they go back, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So do you just keep them on the garbage because they're going back in six months? It's yeah. It's tough. Yeah. I want to pivot to some past work you've done in the past Connecticut children's health, youth, and family community health program used to fund and provide a support group with uh, for women with HIV called Willow. Can you speak about your experiences working with the Willow program and how that experience impacted the participants? So Willow um, stands for Women Involved in um, Life Learning from Other Women, Willow. And it was a CDC um, evidence-based intervention that we were funded to provide for many years. I think we had it for like, we did it for five years to where we actually saturated the, uh, the network. And that's what they try to do. You try to saturate the network of women, um, uh, uh, in this case of women um, who are living with HIV with, you know, information, it's a, it was an educational um, intervention, but we would touch on like really um, uh, severe topics um, like um, uh, uh, domestic violence and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, it was borderline to a, a support group, but it wasn't, it was an educational intervention. And we always made sure that we explained that 
to um, the women because you have to get through the, the components because they get certified at the end. Um, and it was sponsored by the CDC through the Department of Public Health. So um, we, um, we haven't had that um, funding for a few years, but the women at the end of every cohort would say, uh-uh, we gotta keep this going. We wanna keep this going. We wanna keep this going. And um, from that, we, um, the consumers, um, um, and some of the staff at um, our program came together and we developed a another um, support group, a peer-to-peer -peer support group, and it's called Phenomenal Woman. Um, and um, so our Willow Women, they're still strong. They come to our peer-to-peer -peer, um, support group and it's very, very robust. Uh, we use the 12-step um, concept um, of how do I stay healthy living with HIV, you know, the yearly mammogram, you know, telling someone if I'm using too many substances, you know, um, mental health checks, um, CV4 um, labs, you know, point going to our HIV appointments, and all of those kinds of things are the 12 steps to being a health a healthier person living with woman living with HIV. So um, from that Willow intervention and our Willow Warriors, and we have them throughout the state, um, we actually have a peer-to-peer -peer support group called Phenomenal Woman. And we start every group off with Phenomenal Woman poem by Maya Angelo. Thank you very much. And whoever whoever volunteers to do the poem has to do it with some flavor, okay? So um, so it's fun to start off the meetings that way. It's been so special to actually have been able to work alongside some of the women um, from your Willow program who have gone on to be champions and advocates, just hearing their stories um, from when the group um, was still going on and when after the fact and they're knowing that they're still involved is, is just beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, so you talked about Phenomenal Woman and I'm so, I'm so glad to hear about that. And I'm hoping that with our audience, um, they can also get involved with Phenomenal Woman, right? Um, what other uh, new initiatives, because I know your team is pretty awesome at finding the new innovative strategies. Uh, what current strategies are you um, activating within your team at the, the clinic? So one of our um, issues with um, families, um, because uh, what's different about us, because we specialize in women, infants, children, and youth, we are um, family-focused, um, patient or individual client-centered. Um, and one of the things that we had been dealing with for many years is navigating women with children through the housing continuum. Um, so um, in 2019, we actually wrote a, a, a grant to um, to focus on youth. So it was women and youth, but young women, because some of the women in our program um, were, you know, 19, 20 years old, you know, first baby, things of that nature. Um, but also um, um, other women of childbearing age. It's just it's harder to navigate them through the housing continuum because um, most, if they're experiencing homelessness, the first stop needs to be emergency uh, emergency housing. And the traditional, even within the um, HIV arena, the Ryan White systems and even um, HOPWA, which is housing opportunities for people living with HIV and AIDS, um, they, in our area, it was set up to really um, be able to provide appropriate services to individuals living with HIV. Um, and when with women, they come with children. Um, and for example, one of the um, emergency shelter hotels um, uh, would not, the hotel, this was the hotel, not the program, would not allow more than two children in the hotel room. But we got a family with four kids. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so they weren't um, um, able to even get those specialized um, housing services for um, women or people living with HIV. So we did get this grant in 2019, which was a youth housing stabilization program, where we were able to um, 
um, to place youth in a housing uh, program that um, was more appropriate for them. So our young um, um, youth who are young men who have sex with men don't do well in a um, men's um, shelter where there's, you know, 20 men in, on bunk beds living in, you know, in one room for that time. So we were able to do that, but then um, COVID happened. And because we still had the funding and we were running into um, women um, with children who are experiencing homelessness because they don't necessarily go to a shelter, especially if they live with HIV because of the stigma and the medications and things like that. They don't want exposed to the regular public population. Um, they would like go to um, a, a, their mom's house, which is the grandma who's living in a senior apartment. They're not supposed to be there, things of that nature. But when COVID happened, all of that stuff came to light and they had to get out of there. So um, we checked with our um, our um, our project officer on that grant for the youth housing um a stabilization program, and they gave us special permission because COVID calls for a lot of, um, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, leadway on how we really gave these services, and they allowed us to do not just our um, adolescent young moms, but also other um, moms who uh, were experiencing homelessness who had who had children. So um, since then, we've you know partnered with Part B. Thank you, Patty Gay, um, to be able to because with part b we can um do adults and um and our youth to continue um that type of um, model and i tell you we're going to uh, present on it and our um, um our permanent housing rate is extremely high our um viral suppression especially for the youth the, the including the adolescent moms was at 46 percent and now their viral suppression rate is at 90 percent so it's just it's like housing is health and we looked outside the box we could we got tired of bumping up against the rules that was really um, weren't appropriate for um, families with um, children, women with children, and decided to bring it in-house. Um, so that's why we we were called an HIV program, but now we're called a community health program because we've expanded our services to cover so many things like housing, food security, you know, medical transportation, um, prevention services, prep, PEP, prep navigation, and things of that nature. So I, I also know that like you have in the past mentioned um, how, I don't want to use the word difficult, but it's the word that's coming to my mind about transitioning the youth that started as youth with you into um, being adults. I can see why it's hard. <laughs> you guys are providing a, a dynamic uh, program um, and support system, a wraparound for all of the people that you work with. It's really a, a dynamic, dynamic thing. Thank you. It's very impressive and it's awesome to hear. So we know that in the state of Connecticut specifically, the HIV rates tend to be highest among men, but there's also a huge number of women every year who are infected with HIV and uh, women of color being the, the highest among that population. What does the current climate look like for cisgender women of color in Connecticut regarding the HIV epidemic? So, I mean, our concerns, um, of course, is um, uh, Black women in particular um, have the highest rate of being late testers. And for those listeners who don't know, that means they're being tested, um, they're being diagnosed with HIV later in their um, in their disease, and soon after being tested, they um, uh, are diagnosed with full-blown AIDS, which in today's time is just... Um, unacceptable. Um, so th that's one of our concerns. Um, you know, I know you all that, you know, you warriors that are in the field with me um, on this podcast um, understand that there's a, a um, there's not a great uptake of PrEP um, to prevent HIV among Black people. Um, this is in our community and it's, uh, you know, across the country. Um, and and we, we are concerned because we did have a case um, a, a little while ago um, that was referred 
transferred into our program where the, um, the infant actually um, contracted HIV because the mom tested negative up to her last trimester. So, but she had high-risk behaviors. And PrEP is, um, is available um, for women who um, are not HIV positive, who are pregnant. So um, that is one of our totem poles that we really need to assess women. Um, um, uh, gynecological and obstetricians need to really make the determination on whether the woman needs to be on, um, on PrEP if she is pregnant to prevent a, a um, seroconversion to being HIV positive. It, ha it does happen, it has happened, um, and there's no sense for, for it to happen. So even, um, and, and people, you are a little leery about pregnant women, even with COVID, you know, can pregnant women get the vaccine? And they did a lot of research to say, yes, you know, and it, it helped um, protect the unborn baby. So this is the same with things like um, PrEP um, to, you know, really do those assessments um, and to see if, you know, a woman who is pregnant should be in, who tests HIV negative should be considered for pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent, um, you know, seroconverting to HIV, living with HIV. Yeah, that's awesome. Sharon, would you like to... Yeah, I have a question. I I was struck by um, your statistic that Black women are getting tested much later than other women and other people with HIV so that they wind up more likely to get full-blown AIDS. I'm wondering, so there's there's some evidence that the later you are diagnosed, the less likely you are to have positive outcomes in terms of longevity and um, some of the age-related age disorders that are increased in people with HIV. And I wonder how well known is that? Like it's, there's a real advantage to getting diagnosed early when your viral load isn't too high in terms of how long you'll live afterwards. Right. And, 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 you know, as well as other people on this podcast, that is what we work to do as public health professionals. We really, um, you know, that's why there's so many initiatives. Um, we we're working to do a special initiative um, specifically for Black women, the Black Women's Institute, to um, so that we can educate and re-educate that the earlier you get tested, the more likely your outcomes um, will, will be better um, because you can um, keep the virus um, under control, undetectable. It, it decreases inflammation, which comes with most illnesses, um, which can really wreak havoc on your body. Um, and then also the, the aging process um, to, to top that off. So the earlier someone knows their diagnosis, of course, it's the better. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, we really need to do more to spread that message and awareness. Thank you so much for sharing. Now it's time for a quick second break. Stay tuned in because when we come back, we have more to discuss with Daniel Warren Diaz about the lack of utilization of PrEP among cisgender women. You won't want to miss this. Hola, mi nombre es Pedro. Siempre he usado condón para prevenir contagiarme de VIH, pero esta última vez tuve un desliz. Semanas después, me di cuenta que tenía síntomas como el de un resfriado común. Afortunadamente, tenía una cita con mi doctor la semana siguiente. Mi doctor hizo algunos exámenes de rutina, incluyendo el del VIH. Ahora estoy en PrEP, cuidando a mí y a mi comunidad, diciéndoles que se chequen y se hagan la prueba del VIH. Para más información, visita test-ct.org. Welcome back. We've been talking with Danielle Warren Diaz about childbearing people and HIV. And our next question pertains to PrEP. Danielle, would you mind explaining for our listeners what is PrEP? So PrEP is um, uh, abbreviation for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and it is um, medication that can be taken once a day to um, prevent uh, contracting HIV through sex. Thank you. So PrEP has historically been underutilized by all populations that are at high risk for HIV, but particularly among women of color. Why do you think this is, and what can we do to improve this? 
You know, I, I, I honestly think, and, and this has no, um, when it comes to um, women of color, black and brown women, it really doesn't even have anything to do with socioeconomic status either. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about educated um, black and brown women who are just as exposed as someone who doesn't have the higher levels of education, like master's degrees um, and things of that nature. But for some reason, you know, um, our sisters just don't see themselves there and as, as needing it. And it could be for, you know, various reasons. They may feel they're in a monogamous relationship, you know, and especially in the earlier years, that really didn't make a difference. Um, women, um, you know, were it were married and later found out, you know, after testing um, uh, a positive for HIV, being diagnosed with HIV, found out that their husbands um, also were living with HIV. So, um, you know, it's just so easy not to see um, oneself um, in, in a certain picture if you don't fit what you're hearing. And that is... Um, that's unsafe for women of color um, because we are so much at risk. And um, most of the women um, who, um, a high percentage of the women who um, live with HIV is black women in particular, um, when you ask them their exposure, they say, they say that it's through heterosexual exposure. So um, they're contracting HIV through sex. Um, and, and that is something that we do as, as human beings. So, you know, we really have to kind of take that veil off and, and as black women, as brown women, you know, try to see ourselves in, 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 that, in that picture and really, really think about whether we need to be protecting ourselves from um, HIV. So what do you say to someone that you're working with in your clinic, for example, who thinks they don't need PrEP? What kind of strategies work to maybe convince people? So and, and we 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 have women who um who we do see who are actually actually partners of men um living with HIV and they are very aware that their um partner um uh, lives with HIV and still feel that they don't want to take prep, and I mean it's frustrating. It's like you know you need to you know you know just think about it just for that extra protection. Um, and and it's it can be confusing information, especially if you're in a serial discordant relationship. When I say serial discordant, I mean one person is HIV positive and the other one is not. Um, you hear different information, and um, one of the information is the U equals U. I have to say it can be confusing because they feel that okay, so he's undetectable. So if he's undetectable, I'm not um, at risk. And this is just in couples that know um, that a, a partner is HIV positive. Um, but unfortunately, we have seen um, someone serial convert. Um, who felt that way because the young man did not stay HI, um, 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 virally suppressed. And she eventually, and she's a woman of childbearing age. Um, so the last child we had, you know, she had to um, go through the regular standards of a woman living with HIV um, who's, who's about to give birth, you know, um, making sure she was undetectable, then giving the child, um, uh, um, you know, um, uh, prophylaxis, um, after birth of um, HIV medication for six weeks. So, you know, even when you know and you feel like you're doing the right thing and knowing that what your partner um, has, um, sometimes, you know, your decisions just aren't the right decisions. And at the end of the day, we have to take people from where they are. She didn't, she, this is what she wanted. And it's so disheartening for us because it's not the only case where we've seen um, a partner, um, Cyril, convert. You know, we've seen it with our uh, um, our clients who are young men who have sex with men, who are in relationships with someone who lives with HIV, and they make this this decision not to um, not to take prep. So all we can do is give the information, reiterate the information. You know, try to do it in a way where 
we're not, they don't feel that we're disregarding their decision to not take PrEP, um, but, you know, to be able to share, you know, without giving them from, you know, you know, personal um, indicators, but it be able to share that people do seroconvert when their partner um, is living with HIV, because you never know when a viral load will spike up. I do want to reiterate that a person who lives with HIV, who is adherent to their medications and remains undetectable will not transmit the virus to another person. When someone is in a serodiscordant uh, relationship, you don't know when a person is adherent to their medications or not. So it's imperative that you have the extra protection, in my opinion, and, and be on PrEP. Yeah, that's that's such a shame um, that, uh, but I can totally get how it's gotta be like a shared decision-making kind of model and you have to respect the patient's decision. So I guess maybe thinking about it from more of a public health perspective, so what do you think is a really deep down the main barrier to PrEP and what would be a good strategy from a public health perspective for, um, a, for sort of getting past that or getting that overturned? Do you think it's stigma? Do you think it's just a not believing that it can happen to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a stigma. And I mean, what we can do as public health professionals is to continue to educate and, and really um, have interventions that where people can see themselves in that picture. Um, and um, for women of color, that's not necessarily been what has been happening, even in the marketing of PrEP. Um, it was very much geared to um, young um, or, or to gay men, and even transgender um, women were considered in those in that marketing. Um, but Black women and Brown women need to be in that marketing. They have to see themselves there to say, okay, this is talking to me. And right now, um, I hopefully we'll, we're, we're going to do better at it. But from the beginning of our PrEP era, when we had this opportunity to um, prevent HIV for folk, um, it wasn't marketed the right way to um, Black and Brown women. And because of that, um, they don't see themselves there. So we have to do more marketing. We have to do um, um, personal types of interventions, um, which is really, really important, um, be it through groups, be it through our um, sororities, because we have like some great Black um, historical um, sororities that we need to get involved in this, the AKA, the Alpha Kappa Alpha, Delta Sigma Theta, okay, girls, let me hear your signs and your sounds, you know, for all of you, um, Sigma, like for all of our Black um, uh, sororities, historical sororities, like why they're not in this March, I don't know, but it, it's up to uh, public health professionals to look outside of public health professionals and get those folk that are really, that are um, pillars in our community to be able to get involved with this to say, and any other women's group and, and, and the church women's group, the sister groups at the churches to get these women involved, to talk to each other, to talk to other women, to talk to our young women about the importance is of protecting ourselves from anything, including HIV. Yeah, that's amazing about the marketing. When when uh, Black women have some of the highest risks, they're not being included in the marketing. Yeah, that needs to change. If I could shout like we were in church, I would. <laughs> because you just preached a whole sermon in just a matter of minutes. And, and uh, you remember we were pulled into um, like a, a board of directors to actually talk about and create strategies on, you know, messaging for, you know, prep use in uh, women of color. So yeah, this, this, is, this continues to be an issue. So this is a great um, segue into my question because um, we've talked about, you know, lightly uh, earlier about the cultural impact to how we as you know, providers um, provide care, right? 
um, especially when we're talking about people from the Caribbean islands and different uh, religious practices and so on and so forth. How would you recommend providers break down the communication barriers with patients from diverse cultural backgrounds? I mean, you know, I'm a big, um, a staunch advocate for peer-to-peer. So, you know, that is a way that you can actually use um, a peer, part of the, the peer workforce, um, actually use the people from the communities, people with lived experiences to um, to work with, alongside um, you as a provider um, to be able to address it and be more comfortable and kind of know the nuances of, um, of different cultures, but, but also not to let culture um, um, cause a bias. Um, you know, one of the things that um, we, you know, we have seen is that um, white providers um, are, um, you know, more likely to provide even prep um, prescriptions to um, white people um, as opposed to people of color, um, to black people, you know, um, and I'm going to say this because I'm, I'm a sister um, and I could come across kind of strong. I know I can, um, but, you know, this whole thing of the um, um, the mad black woman um, uh, um, thing, you know, um, stereotype that's put on the population can prevent, people internalize that and it prevents them of wanting to talk about hard topics because they feel like, okay, this person just going to go off or, you know, um, and that's not necessarily the, the case. I mean, we all want, want to be healthy. So to not allow cultural um, biases to, to stop you. Um, so, and that takes some inner work, you know, um, to not think of culture and, and talk about those hard um, subjects. I had a, a, a woman um, who, you know, we were at a meeting a planning meeting and she you know we talked about um talking to about sex you know um um, safer sex and things like that at at health fairs at fairs or at you know just community events and she says well my culture you know we don't want anybody talking to our kids about um our teens about you know sex and things like that you know and um she you know her these are teenagers that she has and um and you know these are little black girls she's talking about you know I said but the highest numbers of chlamydia is right here in your neighborhood you know and they're black girls I mean, so, you know, we have to get past that. And as a public health professional, we have to talk, you know, get look through the, the culture and talk about the things that needs to be talked about, because culture can make it seem like it's being disrespectful. But what's more disrespectful to me is watching all these little girls come in for treatment for chlamydia. So, you know, um, we have to know when to take culture into consideration, but then when not to let culture interfere what what needs to be happening. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, in the Black community, we have the Caribbean culture, which is really, really um, strict. You know, I have a, you know, I adopted my daughter. She's, you know, she's Jamaican. You know what I'm saying? But she she was sexually active. You know what I'm saying? I hope she don't get mad at me, but she was sexually active at a, at a, at a young age, you know, regardless of where she came from. So, um, you know, I, I just really implore people and public health professionals to not allow it to be a barrier either way because it's because of bias and not understanding or because you're trying to really respect the culture so you don't want to talk about these hard things. You know, either way is dangerous for our culture. And right now, Black and brown people are the, the most impacted. So we have to be able to get past it. Absolutely. I'm going to take a page from your book where I'm, I'm going to talk about how sometimes in my own family, I'm able to take off and put on my hat. So as a family member, as a public health person, and um, you know, a woman uh, who, you know, of course, I'm in the dating scene. Like we all came here because of a specific act. And if we are afraid to talk about what happened to manifest us in the world, um, it is a disservice. So I, I have been the person to be the bold one of my family where I am talking directly to my elders because I know what even people of a certain age and their risk categories can be, regardless of if you want to make it look prim and proper, there are risks out there if you are, you know, 
um, <laughs> about town and, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, doing what you want to do. But like, we, we do have to have these tape, these dinner table conversations. And I, I was really grateful to have come into a space of understanding one public health, my role in when I'm in the office, and when I go home, I don't, I don't shut down none of that, right? I'm still, I still should be able to, to talk how I talk in the office, to how I talk in the home. And so I've always been of the um, belief that when my son was being raised, sexual health and all of that started in my house first, because I knew how I learned about sex when I was his age or younger. And it was from my peers and it was incorrect. Right. Or now, because back then I'm from the 80s, uh, we had the Internet, but children do. Right. So do you want them to learn from the Internet or do you want them to learn from you? And I know that there, that takes that takes some doing. But I think also it just takes the one person to be bold enough to say these are these are the facts. Um, and I think that's also important if you are if you are a person working in the realm of public health can speak to sexual health. And I think that's you. I think that's me. And I think it could be all of us in our homes to really have like these real conversations. So yeah. like, I, I just love, I just love this conversation. Go on and on about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm picking up an intervention, especially for yeah. um, families of color. Who wants to be the favorite auntie? Who wants to, you know, that um, popular opinion leader? Because everybody comes to me about sex stuff. I mean, nobody has to hear about the stuff like the cousins, you know what I'm saying? My sisters, like if you got something going on, guess who they calling? Then, and yeah, I have that so, person you know, from my family too. Not yep. In your immediate household, so you are that person for your family. So it could be an intervention, especially for um families of color. Because I had that favorite cousin, God rest her soul, Peggy. She was my favorite cousin. Girl, I went to her with everything. You know what I'm saying? Not my parents, but I had somebody. You know what I'm saying? So um, it could actually be an intervention because I think we do have that person in all families, whether it's, you know, mom, dad, cousin, auntie, favorite auntie. There's someone there that we can educate and make sure they're the point person for that family. Yep, yep, I absolutely. This reminds me of an experience I had when I was doing some outreach work down in Stanford. There was this young 18-year-old, and he had reached out to me because he wanted some pre-condoms and he wanted to get tested for HIV. So I told him where the healthcare van was going to be parked, and he showed up, and we started talking, and he admitted to me that he only used condoms with his female partners. And I said, you know, that's really interesting. Why only your female partners? And his, he said, because ever since I was a little kid, my mom would always tell me, don't get pregnant. Whatever you do when you get older, don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant. And he knew that he's not going to get pregnant if he's having sex with another guy. And so he just never used condoms with another guy. And I said, well, we got to get you a whole ton of condoms because you should be using condoms with all of your sexual partners and explain to him about the risks and such. But to your point, I really think there is a, a lot of education that we need to be doing uh, among parents and among family members so that they can be trickling that information in among their family. And we just, this country is so conservative overall. And, and I can say from my experiences working at the health department here in Connecticut, the amount of pushback that I was even getting about the types of messages that I wanted to put out there because, you know, we could possibly offend somebody or upset somebody. There were times I wanted to say on a radio ad, for example, that the highest population of people get being infected were uh, men who had sex with men. All of the radio stations sent me back my recording and said, we will not put this on the air because we are a family radio station. And if some parent is driving their minivan and they have a child in the backseat that says, you know, what's that mean? They didn't want to upset those parents and put them in an uncomfortable situation. Well, I'm sorry, isn't that the role of the parent to be in an uncomfortable situation when they're raising their children? It is absolutely the role. But unfortunately, I think what happens, and even if, if we remove if we remove culture, right? I think what happens is, for whatever reason, generations upon generations were taught to keep things quiet, 
right? You keep it quiet because no one should know about your private things yeah. or, and that's where a lot of things can happen in the silence and in the privacy and, and, and not knowing what you should know because you can't talk about it or all of that. So like we could go on a tangent and we'll be yeah. here for three hours. <laughs> this, this, this conversation is so rich. So I have a question. FEP has been approved for children 13 year old and older. How are providers recommended to bring up PrEP to their youth patients? Danielle? So at the Children's Hospital, first of all, you know, one of the um, questions uh, earlier was about um, people knowing their diagnosis early. And routine testing has been passed for the state of Connecticut. It's law. Um, and we have implemented routine testing at the Children's Hospital. And it's built into the electronic medical record that if the, the, the youth starting 13 and up have not been tested within the year, in the year, um, um, for um, HIV, that it be added to the panel um, uh, for them to be um, tested routinely. And um, from that, um, also part of that pathway is that, um, you know, for, for, for youth that come in um, starting at the age of 13, because under, under 13 at 12, if there's any sexual activity involved, you do have to go a little further. You have to do uh, a, um, a referral to DCF. Um, you have to make sure there's no um, sex trafficking um, involved with this, you know, that it's not an older person, that kind of stuff. Um, but 13, um, 13 and up, um, you know, a, a, a if they if they uh, come back positive for an STI, um, we um, we do um, HIV testing more frequently for that um, for that use. Um, and from that, that the person that tests positive for SDI, even if they are, um, they do test um, negative for HIV, um, they are referred to um, our infectious disease department where they will have access to um, a PrEP um, assessment and PrEP navigation um, services. So we have um, implemented this, I think we're on our, um, maybe fourth year now um, I'm doing this. And it's been ramped up since the passing of the law for, for um, routine testing. Um, so we're trying to, you know, um, disseminate that process and that information um, um, to other parts of the children's hospital network, um, because we do have private um, doctors who call in for um, cons consultation and things like that. So it, it's a huge network that the children's hospital has of physicians who work with um, um, adolescents ages 13 um, and, and up. And nowadays we go to 26. I know that, you know, this, um, that uh, the HRSA says of 13 to 24, but when um, Obama was in office, that expansion that you can stay on your um, your, uh, mm -hmm. your family's medical insurance up until 26 caused for us to expand that age. And I tell you, the light bulb for a lot of youth don't go off until they're 28. We've seen it happen over and over and over again at the Children's Hospital. Took forever to get them young women. The, the only time young women would be... Um, 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 would be adherent to their medications when they were pregnant because they didn't want to pass um, the HIV to their um, to their baby. So pregnant women that you know that live with HIV, they are they are more likely to um, be adherent. But once the baby is born, the baby becomes the focus, and their own care kind of falls off, and medication adherence falls off um, as well. So um, you know that. That, that routine testing and, and the other thing that happened um, more recently, uh, recently as well is that the um, PrEP services can be administered without consent from the parent. It is considered reproductive health care. And um, since the 70s, you, um, the uh, youth in Connecticut from the age 13 can get reproductive health care without consent from their parent. And um, a couple of years ago, um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is HIV prevention, was also added to reproductive health care. So they can get the services without consent from their parents Fabulous. legally think, in Connecticut. I think there is a lot of education that still needs to happen about that because I think pediatricians, right, or providers 
of uh, healthcare to use. I don't, I don't know where I feel they're educating on this or not wanting to like cross the boundaries of, you know, going into that. But I think it's so important that, you know, uh, you know, providers, if there is any kind of, you know, fear of talking about certain things, then it really should start earlier. It should. Um, I remember when my son um, was going uh, to the pediatrician, his pediatrician, you know, um, at UConn, I really love the assessment they did. Um, they gave, sent him an assessment for um, his, uh, his appointment and he was a teenager and they're, they're like, this is not for you, mom. Um, we're going to remove you from the room. And I said, absolutely. Like, you know, I want him to feel like he's in a space of learning and understanding. Um, and I think, I think the earlier we can get the, the education about all, all that it, per, uh, that is important to know about sexual health to the youth, the better we are. It, it really is truly important to do this. Um, with our youth, for sure, for sure. Oh, again, I could go on and on and on and on about this. Um, this has been so dynamic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. And on behalf of the Getting to You crew, I'd like to thank Danielle Warren Diaz for coming on and providing us with such insightful information. For those who are interested in getting to know uh, more about your program, Danielle, how can they reach you? So um, my direct line is 860-466-9685. Uh, and my uh, email is dwarren, that's D-W-A-R-R-E-N, at U-C-H-C dot E-D-U. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you so much. And we'll be sure to add your contact information in the description for the podcast. So it'll be listed there for people to find as well. And as always, a huge shout out to all of you who for tuning in. Don't forget Getting to You airs every month and we can be found on all podcast platforms as well as the AETC website. That's right. And regardless of platform you choose, please like, share, and subscribe to show your support and help spread information and awareness about HIV in our community. And if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or just want to share your feedback, please feel free to do so in the comment section or email us at ctaetc at yale.edu. That's ctaetc at yale.edu. Please join us again because there's, there's no, no getting, getting to you, you without, without you. you.